So welcome, folks, to this week's Games Clubhouse. You know, we talk every Wednesday on trending news and, and topics in the games industry. And just as a quick intro, I'm, I'm Jonathan Live from A16Z. And I'm here with my fellow co-hosts, Andrew Chen, also of A16Z, Kelly Wallach of the Indie Megaboot, Andrew Green of Stillfront, and uh, Amit Mahajan of Presence Capital. And we have a special guest this week, uh, Justin Waldron, the co-founder and SVP of product at Zynga. And um, Justin led product for many of Zynga's first games, including Zynga Poker and Yoville, which put the company in the map, and Amit, I believe, was a co-creator in Farmville uh, soon afterwards. So we have a great crew of guests today to study that, that fascinating period of, of gaming history. Um, so without further ado, let's uh, jump into it. Um, Justin, I, I believe if I read if I recall my origin story on Zynga correctly, um, that you had actually dropped out of college in order to start Zynga in the early days. Um, can you tell us a bit about sort of that, how, how did it all happen? Um, you know, how did that get started? Like, how did the team come together, et cetera? Yeah, sure. So um, actually, uh, you know, well, so Facebook was originally launched on only colleges, right? And I was actually a freshman um, going to university and I, I was using Facebook, uh, in 2007 before they had launched the platform. And when they decided to launch a platform, I got really excited about it. So I, I developed one of the first apps on the platform. It was actually related to games, but it wasn't a game. It was, uh, at, at the moment, the Nintendo Wii was super popular. Um, and they had this system for friend codes where you could sort of share your number. It was a bit like a phone number. Um, but it was, very difficult to share your friend number. So I just made a simple app that let you put in your friend code and, and see all of your friends' friend codes and very easily connect with them. So you could add them on the Nintendo Wii to play multiplayer games with them. Um, and what happened was uh, Mark Pincus saw it uh, because, <laughs> not because it was, it was such a great and inspiring app, but because there were sort of like 30 or 40 apps in, in, in the entire platform at that moment. Um, and he said, hey, I'm making some stuff on, on Facebook's platform, I'm, I think it's really interesting. You wanna make some things together. Um, I said, sure, why not? And we, we actually started the company, not as a game company, um, but more just focused on this idea of this platform is, is gonna be a really big deal. And, and what do people wanna see on this platform? And so the first, one of the first things we tried was to go and build a social web browser. So uh, <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous from a privacy perspective today, but uh, I built a plugin for Firefox that would take every website you visited and let your friends see it. Um, and we thought this, it was this really cool idea that just after a few weeks of testing it, we realized all the reasons that was going to be something really hard to make work. And so um, I looked around me and everybody at university was playing poker at that time. Like the World Series of Poker was just huge on TV. And we decided to make a poker game. So uh, it sounds quite quite simple, but you know, at that time, there was really nothing in the way of um, that complex of a live multiplayer application on, on a web page with like a live socket connection and, and people able to play a live game of poker together. All the the clients for poker they were they were still downloadable clients and most of them were focused on real money uh, gambling. So we decided to to hack something together very quickly and put it up and uh, it started taking off very quickly. And the first moment that we, we kind of logged in and played the game and we saw friends playing at the table with their, their real, the real names, the real photos. And then we built a feature so that people would just automatically land on the same table as you if, if they were your friend. 
it just it clicked very quickly wow this is this isn't something that's just about poker this is going to be something that um we can apply to any game and uh from there you know it was actually the summer so i hadn't dropped out of school yet and so i can't i can't give myself uh too much credit for sort of dropping out on and, and taking a ton of risk before i knew exactly what i was doing but by the end of the summer um, <laughs> this project had turned into a, a huge huge game with, you know, on the order of tens of thousands of, of, of DAU, which now feels incredibly small. Um, but to me, it felt <laughs> enormous. And I decided to drop out at that point. Was the... so, so Justin, oh, go ahead, Amit. Yeah, I, uh, something that's interesting is the, the kind of the, the way that early Zynga would iterate on ideas, right? And so like, what, what were some of the tricks they used to figure out if, if something was working or, or not working really quickly? Well, I think one of the advantages we had is we, we started building up this audience. Um, and because it's the web, it's very easy to, to build something for very cheap uh, as like a sort of simple landing page or um, to, to put a link on a page or a button and to, to see how people react to it. And so we started getting this uh, very early on. We started coming up with this concept of, of testing the heat around ideas before we would build features. And so um, I think mainly because we, we weren't from the industry and we sort of didn't know what we were doing in that sense. Everybody's background was more um, as game enthusiasts at best um, and more, more on the website, more on the social networking side. And we got excited about the connections between people and how we could facilitate those. And because there wasn't a lot of sort of prior art on, on how to make this stuff work, um, we had all these ideas, but we, we didn't know how to validate them yet. And so initially this meant a lot of uh, like putting up a link that would say, hey, this feature is coming soon, click here and see how it goes. And we'd measure the click rate. We sort of measure um, like landing pages for each of these features to just sort of figure out where to take it. And um, eventually this like evolved into something, you know, a lot more rigorous. And, and Zynga sort of um, became uh, pretty skilled at like product management more broadly. And I, I guess what I would say is at that, at that time, uh, a lot of web-based product management was was very much focused on sort of page views and conversions. And, and the reason is because mm -hmm. most of, of the web at that point wasn't really um, very interactive. And so, so people were really thinking about the web as like you, you land on a page, you, you, you put in some information, you convert or you don't. Um, and so we had to build a lot of the initial sort of thinking around like how do you measure retention? How do you how do you measure engagement? How do you think about it across cohorts? Um, and and now you know the tools are widespread, the knowledge is widespread. But at the time, this is something like uh, it felt like we we kind of had to invent it from scratch. Did did you realize that you were like inventing a new like at what point did you realize you were kind of inventing a new way of doing game development? Um, my boss, I was at Electronic Arts, and we were still you know, digging into like game telemetry that was, you know, after a, you know, package goods ship and not really reacting to it. My boss met with someone at Zynga at the time and he came back and his eyes were like wide open. And he was like, I just met with Zynga. And they're changing everything. Uh, did, did that like hit you early on or, or did you feel like, you know, uh, was it like really iterative in the process where you realized that like data was going to be a really central component to development? Yeah, I, I think a huge part of the story is about data. I, I would say, like, actually, the, the, there's sort of three 
big pillars um, that, that we sort of combined that, that led to a new paradigm in gaming. And, and I guess the first one I would say is figuring out how to give a, a native internet business model to games. And I, I guess what I would say is that at that point, it became clear that most of the, the web's largest consumer products were free upfront. Um, and, and the main business model people were thinking about was advertising. And this idea of microtransactions, people were hearing murmurs of it in different parts of the world, but there wasn't a lot of proof uh, in the West. And, and so even we were skeptical of like whether that would ever be a thing. Um, and when we first started sort of selling chips, we, we actually had no idea how it would go. We, we sold poker chips um, and, and just as a sort of a quick feature again, and it, it started working. And that was one, definitely one key point where we said, whoa, this is, um, we're selling things in the game. What, what does this mean? I mean, it, we can do this in any type of game and it sort of exploded uh, the, the possibility set. And I guess I would say there were, there was a few years where it felt like we had, that was, um, I guess, one of sort of Peter Thiel's ways of looking at it is that was one of our secrets. We, we had virtual goods working for a couple of years when, when other people weren't really paying attention. And I guess what I would say is um, even Facebook, they, they didn't have a sort of payments mechanism on the platform at that time. And they weren't particularly interested in games. And so uh, they weren't aware of, of how much uh, payments Zynga was processing uh, for a couple wow. of hours, actually. And this so there was a period was where, me too. yeah, yeah. And there was no way of tracking this stuff, right? Because there's no sensor tower or anything like that. And we were working directly with, with a payments processor where we had to build all the infrastructure ourselves. And so um, this was like a very well-kept secret. And I remember even um, when Amit, uh, when we were we were trying to bring his company, My Mini Life, on board, and and there were these conversations about like, you know, whenever we're doing M and A, how do we sort of? Uh, it was a lot of cloak and dagger. Like, <laughs> yeah. the, basically, we signed we signed our LOI with Zynga, and then like Pincus pulled us into like a a room, and he's like, okay, I can finally show you guys this, and he pulled up the internal stats dashboard, and like the revenue was just like completely off the charts. <laughs> and, and it was just absolutely, it was, it was crazy because um, I think the thing that people don't, maybe not, don't remember about that time is um, one, uh, the idea of like retention based, you know, measuring like retention and engagement. That was like a pretty unknown thing. Um, yeah. And it was something that we, um, you know, this is, keep in mind, this also, all this technology behind tracking retention, tracking um, cohort behavior. This all predated things like Mixpanel and, and Amplitude and, and these other platforms. Mm -hmm. And so, so Zynga had an entire team that was basically inventing this product called Z-Track, which um, essentially, you know, could have been like an independent billion dollar business on its own, I think, if it was spun off. So it was, it was really eye-opening when we joined. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say, um, I, I met some of the founders of Amplitude very early on uh, when they first got started. And and I looked at it and I, I just said, oh, this, this is this is no good. This isn't as good as Z-Track. And so I, I, I passed on the investment because I, I couldn't see how badly everybody else needed this. And and we were already using a tool that was was we were sort of living in the future. And I should have just looked <laughs> at it and, and said, like, well, everyone's going to need this eventually. And so um, I, so definitely one key pillar of the company uh, was this business model idea. Like, how do you make games into it? a native internet uh, business model. And the, the second part of that is not monetization, but it's distribution. And mm -hmm. 
when it comes to making uh, native distribution through the web, I, I think that what we saw was that there were all these sort of scattered uh, games across the internet where you had addictinggames.com and these flash games that were sort of things people made over the weekend with one engineer. And um, we felt like if, if you could get the cost of distribution low enough um, then, then and, and the monetization high enough, then you would have a flywheel where you could actually reinvest in, in this technology and make bigger and better games. And we didn't think that the games weren't great because the technology couldn't build them. We thought the games weren't great because the business model didn't work. Um, and that was a sort of a key insight where like Flash was capable of, of building these pretty, pretty awesome experiences um, compared to you know what people thought was possible. They, they were thinking that these games were sort of these simple, uh, you know, click a button a few times, leave the page, it doesn't save your state or anything. But the reason that they were like that is because people couldn't make revenue um, and get users and, and reinvest in the game and build out a bigger team and build out the infrastructure to build a larger game. And so what you really they, didn't saw even, the they didn't even know about the retention metric either, which is hilarious to think about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and so what was interesting was like, when you look at what, what Amit was able to do with Farmville, um, it's not like Flash had a, had a moment where they added a bunch of features that, that made it possible to build a game that was that uh, interesting and complex on a web page. What actually happened was Zynga was able to build up the, the architecture, the technology, and, and, and also combined with what Amit had built at his company to go and build these experiences um, that people didn't see were possible before because no one was able to justify investing millions of dollars in the, in the game on flash. And so I, I think when I, when I get excited about um, companies, a lot of times it's, it's, it's great to follow the sort of trend of course of like what technology is going to enable uh, a mm -hmm. new wave and consumer. But I, I also think that business models sometimes take technologies that are already very capable and, and sort of make them into a new thing. And I, I think that's another part of what we saw there. Mm -hmm. What are what are key decisions or um, sort of points where you were debating about the business model or, you know, I, I remember that advertising was a very popular sort of business model early on in the glass days of choosing to go from there that the virtual goods, et cetera. What, what are sort of key key decision points there that you thought were, were critical to sort of the trajectory of the company? Um, I mean, I, I guess, you know, when it came to poker, which is the first game we built, like, I think we, we had revenue quite early on, actually, even before we started selling poker chips. And the reason is because um, from an ad perspective, at that point in time, it was still legal to, to sort of sell leads to the real money gambling operators with, uh, you know, native poker clients. And so we could sell customers to them for, for pretty, uh, pretty high cost per install, I guess is what you'd call it. Um, and so we were doing performance-based marketing for, for some of those poker clients and, and we were profitable before we ever started selling chips. Um, but that, that's sort of very, we became like sort of the free marketing funnel for some of mm -hmm. these paid money poker clients for a few months. And, and that definitely helped us like fund some more growth and some more R&D that then led to us figuring out like, oh, we could also do virtual goods. But once we sort of sorted out virtual goods, and saw the impact of it, it just became clear that it was like the highest leverage way to, to go and monetize. There, there was another decision point, Justin, I'd, lo I'd love for you to touch on, which is at the time, I don't know if people remember, but um, you know, Facebook wasn't the only app, social app platform in town. There was 
Open Social, uh, I think Bebo had something, Orchid had something. So I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, that, that seems like it was a clear decision to, to focus on Facebook and it was something that was striking to us when we joined. Um, How did you guys make that decision to focus on a specific platform? That's a, that's a great question. I guess we were, we were in an interesting position with regard to the platforms because we actually built on, on most of those platforms, like you mentioned. And I think at the time there was sort of, um, it feels like maybe 10 of them and you mentioned some of them and, and the way I'd categorize them, and this is, this is to overgeneralize is they were all sort of the MySpace of their respective countries. Um, so, so Bebo had a very similar feeling to MySpace, except for it was very popular in the UK in Ireland. And um, when I call them MySpace, I, I mean it in terms of the way their network was sort of uh, made up and how users interacted with the product. So often there was sort of fake names, um, fake pictures, lots of younger uh, generation. And, and they, the problem with this graph was that it was very weak. Is what we started to notice is like, you could go very viral in these places, um, but people didn't care about their, their relationships as much. And, we could measure that because we were on these platforms and we could see um, the interactions that people would have in our games and how they would compare across networks. I mean, keep in mind, we launched poker probably on at least six mm -hmm. or seven different social networks. Um, and so I, I think what we saw with Facebook was it, you know, people weren't going to spam their network as much because these were real connections, but that when they had them in the game, uh, they were going to have a much uh, better chance of actually interacting with them and, and higher retention and, and lots of other metrics that were beneficial. And so um, we started to see Facebook go into these different countries. And um, I think the UK was probably one of the first outside of the US. And then how these sort of real name, real photo, um, real friends networks like Facebook would compete with a, a sort of local MySpace. And it, it, we started to see a pattern in how this would play out. And so we would, you know, we would definitely go to these other social networks and say, like, I know Facebook's not there yet, but uh, we've seen this play out a couple times and you should get prepared and you should start thinking about how you're going to um, compete on, on this side. Because every time they go into a new country, like their growth tips mm -hmm. like this and they, they suck all the oxygen out of the room. Um, and, and so we started seeing that pattern and eventually we decided to invest more and more in Facebook. But I, I will say that there was a period uh, where we were making more revenue on MySpace than on Facebook for probably over the first year of the company. And this is because MySpace had the largest U.S. audience because Facebook was actually just college students. And um, mm -hmm. there was a while, and it's hard to remember, but in like 2007 and maybe even 2008, where uh, MySpace was actually bigger. And so because it was a U.S. audience and because it had a larger audience, we, we were making more revenue on MySpace for Facebook than Facebook for a while. So it wasn't a simple decision. And I guess the funny thing I would say, the funny thing I would say is that we, even when we made this decision, it, it's, it's really weird that looking back on it, that we were able to say with so much confidence to all these other companies that were um, dominant in, in their different sort of countries or, or areas that, um, where their social network was popular to say to them, like, Facebook is coming and, and they're going to beat you if you don't do these three things. Um, and, and yet, to not realize the implications of just how big of a company Facebook would eventually become. Cause we were saying mm -hmm. these things to these other companies when Facebook was, was only in the U S. So I guess to your point, Amit, like it is funny that we, we sort of called it that early, but, uh, and, and looking back on, it, I wonder why, um, you know, we just didn't do more. 
I mean, it's it, we were so confident that Facebook was going to win. It, it begs the question, why didn't someone go and build like a Facebook competitor at that point? There were very few people trying. I, I, they didn't even really understand the product at the at the time. It's like, you know, I, I actually worked at MySpace in Brisbane before um, going to EA. And, you know, we were worried about like keeping the servers up and like creating local pages for, you know, like, craigslist type like it was just they, they weren't thinking about the graph or the the feed or anything that actually like you know retained and created virality so it was like i don't think people were even thinking on that dimension interestingly i yeah i think you're right and i think it comes back to partially this idea of sort of this web-based product management thinking about landing pages and conversions versus facebook was also headed in the same um direction as, as zynga we're thinking about like engagement and retention and, and a whole new way of like, uh, you know, doing product management. Yeah, they just they were they were deploying me to like try to sell uh, MySpace pages to Miller Lite and like, you know, Sears. Uh, so, you know, that was what they were focused on. And I was like, you know, in my head, I was like, we're going to get, you know, destroyed here. This is actually a good bridge, <laughs> Justin, because. Uh... You know, at some point in like 2011-ish, uh, it seems like, you know, we did have somewhat of an insight to build something that was going to be a destination website outside of Facebook, right? Which, you know, maybe is the precursor to some of the work you're doing now. Do you want to talk a little bit about Zynga Live and, and Zynga.com and what was going on there? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, after spending some time on working on other games across the company, um, I realized as we were growing bigger that my job increasingly became to uh, sort of as a founder in the company who who wasn't a career executive and who had less to lose to go jump on the the project that um, it was hard to hire people to go to go do. And so so one of the sort of high risk high reward projects I, I decided to jump on was this idea of building a destination site for uh, for for Zynga games, and that meant basically building our own social network. Um, and I mean, we complete with everything. Like we, we had a sort of contact import flow that, you know, worked just as well as Facebook. So it was a huge task to, to go and do this and discovering your friends and all the sort of notifications that, that Facebook had at the time we had, we had very similar ones, but the real goal of the building the network was actually, um, we felt like fundamentally there were trade-offs that any social network that's optimized around a broader experience wouldn't be willing to make when it came to making it the best place to play games with your friends. And so we thought that there was space for something that was optimized for what the players wanted. And, um, and that there was just a certain set of features that wouldn't be great for Facebook users, but would be great for people who, who want to put games first. And so we made a lot of progress on building this actually. And we had multiple sort of ways of approaching it. We, we launched yovil.com and we launched farmville.com and we launched mafiawars.com and all these had significant amount of users actually. Um, and they were like pretty big destination sites in their own right. But then we also launched zynga.com, which was sort of a home for all of them. And they were all interconnected through cross promotion and things like this. Um, what, <laughs> what, what actually ended up happening um, was around that time, you know, Zynga and Facebook were both finally going IPO. And the amazing thing is that we never had a, a real contractual uh, 
agreement between the two companies. We, we were operating on the terms of service that everybody else was operating on um, for years. And when we were IPOing, obviously this became a risk that neither party could have. So we had to sort out what is the actual relationship here? Um, how are we going to have a long-term sustainable partnership? And the tension there you can imagine is like, we have a company making something like a billion in revenue at that point. Um, Facebook's largely not taking a cut of it. Uh, we're their biggest ad spender. I think at, this, at one point you can look in the S1, but we were such a big ad spender that Zynga was mentioned um, in the S1 because I wanna say at one point it was like more than half of Facebook's ad revenue, which just sounds ridiculous how much things Incredible. can change in 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. And we had to sort out like what was fair and going, going back and looking at how the platform launched, um, you can probably go find a video of the old F8 keynote that, that Zuck did in 2007. But what he actually says is we'll never charge developers ever. Um, and no matter what you sell, we'll never take a fee. Um, and he, he mentioned the, the way that they're going to monetize the platform was through the, the ads on the, the right side of the page. And so eventually Facebook started hearing about how much money Zynga was making and um, games really surpassed their initial expectations. And, and they wanted to figure out how to have multiple lines of business going to their IPO. And so the ads business, like, as I mentioned, was actually still pretty small. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of unbelievable how, how huge it's, it's become. And at this point, it's sort of obvious that that's the scalable business. But at that time, there was a lot of, um, they were wondering if, if this credits business could also be um, as big as or bigger than the ads business. And so uh, we worked to try to sort that out. But in the process of it, you know, it was a very intense negotiation. And actually, like we had to figure out um, if, if we needed an alternate home that we could leave to. We had no other option. This, by this point, over the course of, of four years, Facebook had basically gone and taken over the world, as I mentioned before, with all these other social networks. They'd beaten all of them. And so really Facebook was the, the, the final and only platform at scale for social. Um, and we needed a lifeboat. So then Zynga.com became this, this place where we could have, have some, some amount of leverage with, with Facebook in these discussions. But I, I will say um, the sort of overnight throwing hundreds of people onto the project and, and turning it into that meant that we never really got to fulfill our mission of of going and, and figuring out what was best for players because it, it sort of had to become a, a separate uh, project that had, had different priorities at that point. And in parallel, I just want to add that one of the things that was also happening was um, Steve Jobs basically waged war on Flash. I don't know if you guys remember this period of time, but he, uh, he basically called out Flash as just being something he, that they'd never support on the iPhone as more and more users were starting to use mobile devices as their primary primary platform, there was, you know, this idea that we would now need a, another web presence in order to actually support those, those users. Yeah. I was, I, I was just about to say that, um, it's around this time as well, that smartphones and the iPhone started to really take off as this gaming platform as well, right? With the app store. <clears throat> and so, um, it, it's sort of interesting because, um, through, through your time at Zynga, you saw the, the rise of not just one, but actually two sort of major gaming platforms. Right. There was there was Facebook first and then, and then mobile second, um, and then Zynga to this day is still one of the few companies that sort of managed to to navigate that transition you know well, um, and you know not not all companies you know were, were fortunate enough to do that. Um, I, I'm curious um, if if you're looking 
If you're looking out onto the landscape today, um, maybe shifting gears a bit, since you spent you spent a bit of time and sort of the origin story of Zynga, and um, talking a bit about the the market today and sort of trends that you're excited about, sort of looking forward. Um, you know, a lot of developers today and, and companies are, are trying to figure out like what the next big platform is, right? Like, is it um, is, is it web games, is it AR, VR, is it cloud gaming, et cetera? And um, I'm curious from, from from both of you, uh, you know, Amit and Justin, given that you sort of been been in the trenches through two sort of major platform launches and shifts, um, if you have a perspective on, um, you know, what you find most exciting out there. I, I can go first and then hand it off to you, Justin. Um, I, I mean, I've been toying around, uh, I have a, a clearly AR and VR fund. So we've been investing in that platform. Um, and, and there's definitely like, from a gaming perspective, it's, it's, I mean, it's pretty obvious that, that, that there's a future there. Um, but you know, I, I think that one way to think about this is that these plot, these platforms serve different kind of use cases. Um, so VR is like, you're at home, you're looking for something fully immersive, um, similar to like a console. Um, I, I think the thing that was really kind of new that, 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 you know, we, we discovered at Zynga was, was this idea of like, anyone could be a gamer. Um, I, I think my mom didn't play games until there were Facebook games and mobile games. Uh, and so we, it was really an expansion of the pie. And, um, you know, I, I think what, uh, what Justin's working on with instant games is, is, is super interesting. I'll speak more to that, um, for, for that specific segment of just like, you know, I have a moment you know, how do I, how do I find, uh, what we call clicks on or, or taps on now, I guess, with mobile devices, uh, in that moment. Yeah. I mean, I guess, so, uh, look, I am super interested in, in AR and I think if, if everybody had the augmented reality glasses that we will have in, in 10 years today, I I'd probably go and, um, focus on that. And, and I think Amit has been super early and like very um, thoughtful about his investments there through Presence Capital. And actually like, it's really starting to show. So um, that's a space I, I would say like, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on, I'm excited about it, but I, I feel like my skill set is just more suited to this idea of how do I make games for people who are um, not really looking at the moment to play games. And I, I think that type of discovery uh, it, it changed on mobile. And as you mentioned, through Zynga, we started to see this. And um, it wasn't about, you know, 2009, actually, when, when Apple, around when Apple launched the platform, a lot of people don't know this, but, um, or people forget very much, like the first iPhone did not have an app platform, actually. Um, and it wasn't until the next year that they launched it. And then the next year when they launched the app platform, they did not have in-app purchases. Um, and, and Zynga invested very, very early in building mobile games, actually. Um, but the problem with sort of investing more was, was more of the typical innovators dilemma issue that you see where um, it just wasn't possible to generate enough revenue to match the sort of other lines of business that we had on Facebook. And so we overinvested mm -hmm. it relative to um, it's, it's sort of PL by a lot. I mean, we're talking about, we, we probably had three or 400 people on mobile um, when there weren't any companies on mobile that were 300 or 400 people. And I will say that even um, when early on in 2009, when before Apple had launched in-app purchases, we went and told Apple, like, look, you have to allow people to buy uh, items in the game. 
and they basically said, why, why would we do that? Um, and we said, because this is how we're making all this money on, on, on Facebook and these other platforms. Here's what it looks like. And they were very, very skeptical uh, of the idea. And so what we did was we had a version of Mafia Wars and um, we, we put sort of 20 versions of it in, into the, the app store. We had Mafia Wars, you know, one, $1, Mafia Wars, $5, Mafia Wars, $10, Mafia Wars, $20. And the way that you would get coins in the game uh, is you would buy multiple apps. And this was the fastest way to get Apple to enable in-app purchases because they absolutely hated the idea of people downloading seven of the same <laughs> app. And it validated the idea, and that's how IAPs were born. Wow. I love that idea. <laughs> that's a great story. So you had a culture of these kind of um, PM hacks or growth hacks. It was, it was almost like a badge of pride to be able to find these things and, and figure them out. We, Awesome. A, a, a big one. I'll just I'll share one more. Is that, that was really really useful? Was the idea of cross promotion between games? I, I hadn't really seen it before. Before what's, what was happening in Zynga was, you have one big game, and you can basically like you you know you could treat your user base like almost like poker chips that you're shifting around the table. Um, so when we launched Farmville, we were able to get something like a million users overnight because it became the the top cross promotion for Yoville and the other established Zynga games. So there's like. There's this idea that like, you know, even if you have separate games, that it's possible to build a network between your users and shift them around. It's, now it's pretty common to see that, see that, but at the time it was really new. Well, and I'll say that part of that is technology um, based and, and part of it is policy based. And so, you know, uh, I think that um, on the web and without sort of like more rules around what you are and aren't allowed to do, this is something that we could, we could spend a lot of time focusing on. Um, and, and this is why I've been excited about trying to figure out um, just how does the web become a meaningful part of games again on mobile? Um, and and it, obviously, like there was a typical sort of technology hype cycle here with HTML5, where when Amit mentioned, um, you know, Flash was being attacked by Apple and it was it was going to be disabled on iOS devices, which ultimately was was probably the right decision. Um, everyone pointed toward HTML5 as a solution. And on desktop, it, it was sort of ready, um, but on mobile, you know, when it came to building games at the same quality that, that we were building on desktop, uh, it really just wasn't there yet. And so we spent years sort of struggling with, with that transition. Um, and what it meant was um, we, we lost this ability to distribute games through the web on mobile. And uh, I can't remember who said this, but it was someone who's very senior on the engineering side at Facebook said the biggest mistake they ever made was building their newsfeed on their mobile app um, in HTML5. And there was this sort of, it felt like almost a year around 2010 or 11, um, where Facebook's newsfeed, when you scrolled through it, it would just lag like crazy. And you had these new motive, mobile um, native apps coming out where they had super smooth scrolling. And it sounds like a small thing now. I mean, we all just take smooth scrolling for, for granted, but it was really bad and it was because they, they had bet everything mm -hmm. on this idea that HTML5 was going to be the solution for how they supported all these different devices and platforms they, they had to be on. Um, and, it, and it was a total failure and they had to rewrite the whole thing. You know, at Zynga, we were going through the same struggle with like trying to figure out how to port all these games and you know what was performant mm -hmm. on which devices and it was a total mess. And so everyone was saying HTML5 was a solution. It was actually like a trap. Um, it wasn't ready. 
And, and then in the meantime, the web standards bodies and, and the browsers, they just kept improving HTML5 for the last decade. Um, and all the hype went away. And as is typical, I guess, in like these, these technology hype cycles, now you can do a lot with HTML5. And I see this parallel, like back to our earlier conversation with Flash, where you see these little demos floating around the internet. You, you bump into this 3D demonstration or, or some little game that somebody made, and it, it, it's amazing. Like it pops up in Safari on the web, and it's, it's a moment of surprise because you're not used to loading a web page that looks the way um, a native app can look, but it is possible now. And it gets back to this business model problem to me, like the thing that unlocked Flash and the thing that made um, us able to have these huge games with you know, 50 to 100 person teams working on them and all the sort of quality you'd get from uh, that type of investment was because we figured out the business model for Flash games. And, and so I think that now, you know, HTML5 is at the point where it's actually capable of a lot, but no one's figured out the distribution and the monetization side of, of, of that technology. And so one of the things we're working on at Playco, my new company, is basically to figure out, can we get the same flywheel going where if we, if we crack distribution and monetization of uh, mobile web games, then can we start go, going and building experiences that are on the same level as the App Store? Um, and ideally better in, in some important ways. And so the way that we think um, you can build a better experience right now is to focus on how people connect and, and share the game or share what they create in the game. And so I th think that so much content is, is trapped inside of these apps that we've, we've really um, become used to this idea that we can't access uh, a, lot of, a lot of the amazing things that people are creating. And, and we see sort of glimmers of, of the web being an important uh, way of sharing content. You know, we see something like Instagram when it first growed. Um, a lot of it was, was through this idea of this mobile web landing page where you, you would see the photo that your friend took and then they would try to upsell you to the app. But actually like, this is a bad user experience. And if, if we just had a way of sort of improving navigation and re-engagement and retention on the web, I think that for certain types of use cases, it'll be a better experience. And so we're going and partnering with all the social networks um, to figure out how to build games within the mobile apps in their browsers that, that can actually be played instantly with your friends um, and, and fit into the context of whatever you're doing. So can you walk us through like what that looks like practically? Like, like what, is that, what does that actually mean? And, and how does someone find one of your games and, and begin playing it? Yep. So, um, well, the, the great thing about this model is, is, you know, we're really focused on discovery through your friends. So a lot of these platforms do have some sort of app directory, but what we're really most interested in is can you send some sort of invite to play with your friend and how do we, uh, what types of things do people want to do together in that context? So, um, this is going to be different on a per network basis, but if you want to look at something that's live, you can, you can look at Snapchat, um, they have a games platform. You can look at Facebook's Instant Games. And um, there, there are many more mm -hmm. coming, actually. This has become a huge focus for, for almost all the large social networking companies. And um, in China, we've, we've already seen some of these at scale with, with WeChat. So um, practically speaking, like, it, it actually changes the games that you design. And so I think what, what goes unsaid or 
what people don't really notice in the mobile uh, app economy is that actually the, the games that succeed or the apps that succeed are a function of the ecosystem and how you grow. And so, uh, which, which sounds like an obvious statement, but I guess what I would say is there's been sort of a, a tendency to think that, in my opinion, and I, I don't know how widely held this is, but I think some of the trends that we see, like when we look at a, uh, call it like mid-core games or games that get more complex and have deeper gameplay, we've seen a lot more investment in this type of category over the last five to 10 years. And if you talk to some people in games, they'll say it's because uh, player tastes are advancing and they're getting more skilled at games and they're expecting more and they want to go deeper. Um, I would say that it's actually uh, related to the way that games are, are distributed. And if, if you look at how games are distributed, it's, it's gone more and more into the direction of performance marketing. And when you're doing performance marketing, you need to go find the particular player that will play the particular game that you're making. And it's all about uh, actually getting to the player that will spend money, not just the player who will play the game. Any, any user that you purchase that doesn't end up spending money in the game will lower your blended lifetime value of, of the customer. And if you lower your blended lifetime value, then you won't be able to reinvest as much uh, on, on the performance marketing side and you won't be able to compete with the other game companies on a cost per install basis. And so the interesting side effect this has is it's been an arms race around monetization. So the ad ecosystem actually drives game developers to build more and more complex games because they can monetize those better, um, mm -hmm. which then leads us to see a lot of complex games in the top 100 grossing, which then leads people to think maybe player tastes are changing. Maybe people want more complex games. But I think what we're actually seeing is the only games that you can sort of make that are profitable have become increasingly complex. And um, to me, that's a missed opportunity. I think about it almost as like when Uber grew the, the market for transportation, when we, we saw something uh, like black cars and then moved to taxis and then moved to sort of uh, personal ride share and, and how at a certain price point, and a certain level of convenience, uh, the market was much bigger than anyone had expected. And so a lot of the sort of early analysis on Uber, looking at um, the size of the market relative to the taxi industry was way off. And I think that the same is true with games. So we're looking at a market where you have over 20% growth year over year for, for over a decade. Uh, games are a bigger business than movies. They're a bigger business than music. Um, and, and that's all the analysts can talk about. But I think what people aren't seeing is that actually from a user's perspective, as a percentage of users that could be playing, um, games have been shrinking every single year. And so the denominator uh, of sort of mobile devices and people coming online has been growing much faster than the amount of people who are becoming sort of part of the monetized game ecosystem. And mm -hmm. uh, a good example of this is is just to look at Zynga's history. So Zynga IPO'd in 2011. Uh, it was a $10 billion company. It was number one in social games. It had majority market share. I wanna say it was at least 50%. And the reason that it had so much market share was because there were very strong network effects uh, in, in Zynga's business model. The distribution was tied to who you played with. And you, you didn't wanna play a game that didn't have your friends in it. And, in that ecosystem. 
And today, Zynga became the number one mobile developer in the world when they bought Peak uh, Games. And so now they have Tomb Blast and, and they've made other, many other smart acquisitions over the last few years. And it's basically a $10 billion company again. So you've had 10 years elapse and you've seen Zynga go from a $10 billion company that was number one in social games to a $10 billion company that was number one in mobile. Um, so what changed is that there's just extreme fragmentation now. Now being number one in mobile means having a two to 3% market share. And a decade ago, it meant you know, having 20 times the market share of that. And so I think what's happened is that the, the, pie, the pieces of the pie have shrunk faster than the pie has been growing. And so the largest outcomes in, in mobile games in the West, because of the way apps are distributed through performance marketing, um, haven't actually been that much bigger, even though the market is now so much bigger. And so one of our, our sort of key bets with, with Playco is that if you could get back to this, this mode of distribution uh, where people are mainly playing with their friends and that's how they discover games, then um, you'd get back to a game company that could have like a much, much larger outcome and much mm -hmm. more scalable distribution. I think it's worth just um, making a quick note. I, I think first of all, like that, that was a super fascinating point about how the denominator is actually growing way faster than the, than the numerator in terms of the percentage of people that are actually sort of playing games. Um, like the one, the one other sort of backdrop that the last couple of years that gives me a lot of hope personally is that, that the diversity of the people that are actually playing these games has also dramatically increased. And so looking at the more recent hits like Among Us and Fall Guys, et cetera, like it, it's, you know, you, you have a, a very large percentage of women, for example, to play these games. You have, you have older folks um, like my, my parents, you know, the, the grandparents of my, of my kids are, are playing these games. And so, um, you know, part of it is, is part of it is COVID. You know, we're, we're all stuck indoors and as a family, we're looking for, for ways to spend time together. Um, but I, I'm personally optimistic that, you know, this is some, some percentage of those folks that traditionally have not considered themselves gamers will stick around post-COVID. And that will also um, massively expand sort of the addressable sort of pool that the numerator, so to speak, people that are interested in playing games and then i think the question becomes what types of games and experiences will these people be interested in like they probably won't be interested in playing you know call of duty or you know league of legends or something that's very complex or difficult um and so what types of experiences will they be looking to and um especially if you're putting things in a, in a mobile web format where it's it's instant play like they can just click in just using the link that gets sent to them over an iMessage or, or a facebook message um, the, the barriers to entry are very low. And so um, how does that change the type of games that you're, you're designed for this, this new crowd of non previously non-gamers, so to speak? Yeah, and I think to go back to the Uber analogy on, on that one, like I think when I look at Among Us, I, I see people that are basically, you know, previous before Uber, the people that were willing to pick up a phone and, and call a black cab. Um, and, and then, you know, we, our job is to go in and say, wow, that's great. People are playing over, over zoom and they, they want to have this type of experience. How do we make that as easy as opening the app? Like for Uber was where you didn't need to call anymore. You got, uh, you got there faster. Um, you got there with less friction. Um, I, I think we see this emergent behavior where people want to have these experiences, but I struggle a lot. You know, we've, we've tried to get our team together to, to play some of these games and, you know, sharing the code and getting people to install and learning the game. 
um, it, it takes time and it, it's worth it. Like when you have a group of people that understand how to play the game, and you have the time to go through all that. These games are great. And so they're, they're definitely a part of, you know, the inspiration is, is we're seeing that people want this. Um, but we're asking ourselves a question of like, how do we just make more of this happen by default, you know, and can we increase people's connectivity when we, we sort of solve a lot of those pieces for them? What does that look like? And, um, you know, I, I, to your point, I think to some extent it does mean feeding sort of complexity uh, when, when players are ready for it. So we definitely have to think about in the design of these games, we don't want you to have to learn the rules. Um, we want you to learn them as, as you go. And this is like true in, in all game design. I mean, I think it's the Bush, the law of the Bush, Bushnell's law is something about um, games that are easy to learn and difficult to master are the best games to make. And this is sort of common wisdom in, in the game industry. But I would say we'll take it one step further, which is when we're on the web, the less friction you have and, and the more easily people can land inside your game, the easier it is for them to leave. And so we really have to hook people like immediately and sort of prove our worth. You know, on the mm -hmm. app store, if you if you make an amazing video ad or a playable ad and you you get people to show up at the app store page and they decide to download your game, they've gone through an awful lot of work to to opt into your game. And that's mm -hmm. Most people drop off in this process, actually. There's something like a 90% plus drop-off rate on a lot of the um, App Store install pages. And what that means is that the users that you're actually getting in your app, they've passed through a lot of filters. They, they've, they've come from an ad where they've opted into the type of game that you're, you're making because that's where most of the distribution happens. They watched and they read, um, they watched the video on the App Store page, they read the description, they maybe even read the reviews. They're showing up and they're very bought into the concept. And so a lot of App Store games will actually take a little bit of time to sort of explain to you how to play and why you should um, do certain things. And I don't think we get that liberty on the web. Um, I, I think if, if you were to land in most of these experiences you see on the App Store where they assume, they assume that you're going to give the game a minute or two, um, I, unfortunately, we don't have that luxury on the web. So the, the question is more like, how do we make it immediately interesting the moment you land. And so from that perspective, there's a lot that's going on in this sort of hyper-casual space that's uh, very interesting. This idea of how do you make something fun on the first tap? Uh, mm -hmm. But then I, I think the question becomes, you know, how do you also ha have the depth that you can monetize like these other games? And so that's where I think we're innovating on the design side. That's really cool. It's almost like, you know, essentially taking that hyper-casual and then like creating the like, an arc of a funnel that's just like super smooth all the way up. Like as you're increasing the level of difficulty and depth to the gameplay, that's a super like difficult design problem, but like amazing. Um, like if you can get it right, like almost like the first time I played, um, I guess like clash was probably one that, that did that where I like immediately was like, I get this, but then they just kept adding more and more in this like super smooth economy. And it just got me paying like a gajillion dollars. Um, but obviously much different in the fact that you have to get it right on the immediate first tap with no real like I, deep onboarding. I, I was actually going to ask if, um, if, if, if Justin or did, did you, do you have any examples of games out there that you feel do this very well today? Um, you know, that maybe aren't an instant game yet. But you could imagine them becoming one, or you know, have have qualities that sort of speak to that funnel that you just spoke of that are quick to 
quick, to, you know, short time to fund, but also, you know, have enough depth to monetize and retain users over the long term? There are, there are a lot of companies that are focused on, you know, making, making games that are easy in the beginning and then and have the depth to monetize later. I think this is, this is most companies on mobile. I think um, we, I mean, I really love this, this game, Mr. Autofire by, by Lightheart games. And, and we've also um, put a small check into their company and I, I think they're great. It's an awesome team. Um, I, I think there's a bunch of examples of this, I guess what, what, we're excited about is, is something that also sort of can can work within these networks and in, in a more native context and i guess that means that from a design perspective um i don't think there's there's anything in the app store that we could we could really easily look at and say well this would be the perfect game for some video chat platform um there's a lot of stuff that's sort of interesting and close but i think what we're seeing is a shift away from uh, this solo experience back into a multiplayer experience. And one of the reasons there hasn't been a lot of innovation on, on this space isn't just sort of the technology problem of mobile web versus native app store, but also um, the business model problem that I described. And I guess what I would say that I, I think is also um, something I haven't heard a lot of people talk about is with the escalating uh, battle of performance marketing we've seen across all these companies um, not only does it mean that companies have focused more and more on games with a lot of depth and gone toward mid-core games, um, it also means that companies have pivoted away from social. Because if you think about it from a performance marketing standpoint, any user that you buy that doesn't spend money lowers your blended LTV and means that you're less likely to be able to grow profitably. Um, and the side effect of that is you can't make social games because most of your friends that you want to play the game with are not spenders. Uh, spenders are still a minority of, of players. And so the performance marketer's job is to only buy players who will spend. But in a social game, you want to play with all your friends, whether they spend or not. And so <laughs> this, is, this is related to your question because I, I actually think that there hasn't been a lot of innovation in this space because in the app store, it's a, it's a losing strategy. If you go and build a, a social game in the app store, you won't get the distribution benefits from it for a number of reasons. And um, you won't be able to grow on the performance marketing side. And so unfortunately, I think a lot of these games just haven't worked out. And, and so we haven't seen much innovation in this space um, or not as much as I would like to see. Um, and, and so our hope is like we can go find a business model that lets us go way deeper. How much of this was affected by kind of the clamping down of the social networks and being able to import friend graphs as well? It seems like that must have made it hard to also find density. And has that, is that changing now with these instant game platforms? Yeah, I mean, I, there's definitely, look, you know, Cambridge Analytica and like the sort of these events that affected how open these platforms could be with their data. I think it's a good thing because if you, if you think about the sustainability of any of this, it, it's all related to how comfortable users are with uh, authorizing their, their, their data to be used across different applications and developers as partners. And building a system that they actually trust and understand is 100% necessary for, for us to build anything interesting uh, in the long run. And so they've, all the, the companies have been super thoughtful about this the first time. And I, I, when I look back at the information um, you could get on Facebook's APIs in 2007. It was just, it's kind of crazy. They, 
they really opened up everything. And uh, at that time, that, that's just sort of the, the way people thought it, it should have been. And I remember they said, like, <laughs> these APIs are so open that all the new products we're building within Facebook could, could be built on these APIs. And we've dogfooded it. And Photos is, is actually using um, pretty much the same APIs. And our own engineers are working with, with these APIs to build our internal sort of features. And that was a really powerful model, but it also meant that external developers had access to a lot of information that um, no one realized the implications of at the time. Um, I don't think actually most of that information was necessary to make games where you play with your friends. I, I need your name. I need your profile picture um, and some basic access to create interactions between you and your, your friends. And, and that's really it. And so um, from my perspective, like I actually think it's been great that they've they've been making a lot of progress and thinking about what's appropriate there. I want to make sure there's one question that, that gets asked because we have a lot of game designers and, and, and people building games here if, um, who may be interested in building instant games of their own. Um, what, what piece of advice would you give someone who's, who's like wants to build a game in, in instant games, maybe as an experienced game designer on mobile or on console, and um, how would you, you know, tell them to get started and, and where would you direct them? Like, how do you direct them away from the, the Orchids and the, the Bebo platforms of the world and towards the, what's potentially the... The, the Facebook and the, 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 or the iOS opportunity? Yeah, I mean, at, at a, the highest level, like one of the most important lessons I learned from, uh, from Zynga was this idea of just like, how do you develop games um, with the funnel in mind? And, you know, I, I think what's, what's super important and that a lot of people don't spend enough time on is just imagining what the first minute looks like. And so it's common in game development to to go and, and do what's called vertical slices. So I'm sure most of you are, are familiar with that already. And the idea is basically, rather than building out um, sort of an MVP with a broader feature set, you build the game in slices. It means that you might build like, here's what the tutorial looks like. Here's what a battle in the game looks like. And you, you really try to go and build a full experience in that slice so that you can get great feedback from customers and you can all evaluate, you know, how, how should we change this um, what is this above the bar or not? And also, should we be investing more in this project or should we move on to others? That model is really powerful. And I, and I would say it's, it's powerful in all of consumer, actually. Like in, in other companies that are in consumer would benefit from, from using this approach. It's, it's basically a way of de-risking uh, design, design risk earlier in the process. And because games have so much design risk, using this approach, uh, that's why this approach is, is so popular in games, but it, it really works anywhere. And what I would say is where people don't focus enough is just in that first minute. So most of the people who will ever play your game, if you go look at the stats, they will only ever play the first minute. And so you should really go and spend the majority of your time building the first minute of your game. And, and once you're done getting something mm -hmm. there that you think is really great, then go build the rest of the game. We have a, um, a game design sort of term called time to fun, which I, I never hear about sort of outside of games, but just, you know, what's the, what's the length of time it takes for a new user that's coming into the product to actually just figure out what they're doing and, and start having fun. And so um, I think echoing that point, Justin, like just emphasizing, you know, how do you, how do you build sort of short time to fun sort of loops 
within your product. It doesn't have to be a game. It can be any yeah, an enterprise a piece of enterprise software. But just like getting getting to the point where people just understand what they're doing and, and they're having fun, I think it's a it's it's a well set point and and, and not thought of often enough. Do you feel like um, the hyper casual kind of design concept of just putting together like that that first minute of fun and like throwing it in an ad and seeing if that works would be applicable here, even though there might be like more complex, you know, downstream kind of mechanics? Yeah, I do. I think the the hyper casual industry has made a ton of progress in figuring out how to validate ideas for more cheaply. So, um, you know, this this idea of putting games in an ad and, and validating them that way before you've even built the game, all these things are related to reducing design risk. And I guess what I would say, I, I think it's so amazing um, that the game industry has has taken all these approaches, but we don't see it in broad more broadly in consumer because these these approaches apply everywhere. And you don't need to spend a year building something to figure out if people want it. You can much more quickly validate concepts with, with marketability tests, which are very common in, in games. And you can spend time building out the most minimal slice of like a, what the initial user experience looks like so you can evaluate where the game should go. And the reason for doing this is not to, to just build. Um, I think what a lot of people will do is, is go and build the first part of a game that they've already sort of solidified the design for in their head. But the approach that seems to work the best to me is where you're much more flexible on what the design is and you keep doing multiple iterations on, on the initial experience to then figure out what the design should be and use what works in the first minute to go and inform what you build. And that seems to be what the hyper casual studios have gotten really good at. They're very agnostic to what they build if an ad resonates with people, they'll go build that game. So it seems like the magic here then is taking what the hyper, hyper casual studios figured out, these studios have figured out, pairing it with the fact that people don't need to download the app in order to try the experience out and their friends are there by default because they're on social platforms. That's kind of the uniqueness to, to Insta games versus just hyper casual mobile games. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, yeah, that, I think that's mostly correct, except for I'll say that I, I don't think, um, I don't think the games will end up looking like hyper casual games, but I think they'll have a very similar funnel in the sense that they, they need to be as broadly appealing as, as hyper casual games. And they're, they're more focused on a broader market like hyper casual. Um, I, I think the games that you can play with your friends are, are probably uh, less twitchy than than what we see in hyper casual like if i want to be able to play a game with my mom and my grandmother you know right now that's that's a game like words with friends it's a game where everyone can feel like they can be skilled and play at their own pace and so there are a lot of considerations here but i mean ultimately it's it's something where our goal is to make something that you could enjoy with anyone that you want to play with Is, is there a way for people to work with you are you guys hiring or are you partnering? How, how, how can people work with Playco? Yep. Yeah. We're, we're hiring quickly. I mean, we went from about 20 uh, to 120 last year. And so there's a lot of growth happening. We're building out our studios. We're a distributed team. So uh, even if you're outside of the Bay area, that's fine with us. We, we have people in many different countries. Now we've, we've got teams in, in Asia and Europe and, the Americas. And so we're really working on all the time zones now. 
and we've been working through um, all the challenges of, of scaling the, the company in a totally distributed way. So you can definitely uh, reach out to us if you're interested in working directly with us. And we're, we're, we're starting to think about and um, work with some initial partners on, on what publishing might look like as well. So if you, if you have an idea for a game and you're really excited about this idea of making games that people can play with their friends and working with these social networking partners to make that dream a reality, then please reach out. That's, that's amazing. I, I know we're almost out of time. We, 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 um, we typically try to go from five to six, but I think this is a, a great discussion. So we've gone over a bit. Um, I, I like to always end on, on one question, which is, um, you know, for, for all the folks that are, that are in the audience that are entrepreneurs that are building their own companies, um, is there any, um, do, do, you, do you have any words of wisdom or advice that you have for, you know, for company builders that are trying to follow in your footsteps and, you know, build the next play code and next Zynga, et cetera, not specifically instant games, but just in general about entrepreneurship. And then maybe, um, you know, Justin, you can go first and Amit would love to hear from you as well. I, I would just say, you know, it's, it's, Actually, it could be an advantage if you're not an expert in something. And um, one of the challenges I have now is just like, how, how do I unlearn a lot of what I learned at Zynga? Because um, for all the sort of similarities and parallels with Playco and what we're doing now, there, there's so much that's different. The, the world has changed in so many ways. And that's an advantage for everybody that's getting started. You don't have the burdens of a larger company and, and sort of legacy IP um, you don't have the advantages of the resources and the capital. Um, and so the question is like, how do you go and find something that they just don't see yet? And if, if you look at what happened with Zynga, there was just one really important insight, which is um, people wanted to play games with their friends and, and that wasn't very easy to do. And I'll say that this is a, uh, a business insight that's similar to, I mean, if you think about Amazon, it's just best selection and lowest prices. It's a very, very simple strategy, but execution mm -hmm. is incredibly difficult. Um, and it's a timeless strategy. And so what I would say is no one is executing on this in games at scale now because the market has sort of gone a, a different direction with the way distribution works. And it's a very difficult problem to solve with the number of partnerships that you need to go and um, execute on the technical details of, of building games where there, there is no you know, Unreal Engine or Unity. And um, if you need to be willing to go and solve problems people haven't solved before like that, if you want to find something new. And that means that um, in some cases, you know, not being a domain expert is actually great because you'll go in and you'll try things that, um, you know, I might think won't work and, and mm -hmm. you'll be right. And so I guess what I would say is like, there's, it's always good to have a healthy mix of, of sort of being an expert on something but um, having the intellectual curiosity and working from first principles. So don't be afraid to, to jump into areas that, in, that you don't feel like you're an expert. And I think that's where some of the best ideas come from. That's great advice. I, I'm, I'm reminded about how some of the, uh, the most iconic game companies of the day were actually started by founders that were not you know, game industry veterans. And that the one that I worked at, Riot, was started by, by Mike and Brandon. I think um, Mike was, uh, was an investment banker and, and Brandon was a, was a management consultant, but they just happened to, to like playing video games and decided to, to start the company um, at a time when everyone was telling them that they were crazy because they, they you know, had never built or shipped a game before and didn't know the, the pain that they were about to get into. So totally, uh, totally hear you on that point. It's, it's good advice. 
mine's uh just kind of building on what Justin said a little bit. Uh, even if you have you know the insight of being like okay, like something has fundamentally changed. So you know, and my background since since Zynga has been VR and then blockchain, and I, I've been like three years too early to both. Um, and essentially, it was seeing something that was there, but then also you know the advice I'd give is is having the patience to like stick with your conviction. So, you know, we, you know, even something like instant games, the idea of having web-based games existed, you know, for almost 10 years, but it, it took a while for the technology just to mature just enough to, for the distribution models to mature just enough. And that required patience. Um, I think the same thing is true of VR right now. A lot of the companies that are now seeing kind of million dollar sales in their games, they started back, you know, five, six years ago. So, um, so, so basically it's, it's, it's remembering that like, you may have the insight and you may even be really early on that insight, but you know, if, if it's actually, you've, you've actually been thinking from first principles, you're truth seeking properly, then it's just a matter of, of finding a way to be patient and, and stick with it long enough to where the market catches up. I think NFTs are a perfect example of that right now. Um, you know, there was, there was mm -hmm. kind of different waves of that and now we're seeing a resurgence and I'm sure that, they'll die down a bit and then we'll see another resurgence. And it's, it's, it's very, um, these things come in cycles. And, and part of the reason, you know, I think it was great that we actually covered a bit of the history of Zynga here because, um, you know, this, this stuff all rhymes, right? Like now mobile is the mature platform, but you know, we'll look back 10 years from now and be like, oh yeah, mobile was just the start of something, something much larger. And we were all caught up in this mobile thing, but it actually turns out it was this other thing that was, that was the new, the new opportunity at that moment. So, um, just be patient and, and, and really just stick to your convictions. Awesome. Well, this has been an amazing conversation with a lot of hard earned lessons from, from the both of you. So, you know, huge thank you to, to Justin and Amit for, for spending over an hour of their time today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, thank you. Great. Thanks guys. Have a good one.